Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we discuss horror films by categories and subgenres such as slashers, vampires, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. Me and Josh are, are cousins. We've known each other our entire lives. We became pretty good friends, probably like preteen age. Yeah, about then. We were in a, several bands together. Yes, none uh, of them successful. None of them successful. <laughs> this podcast, though, it's going to make it. Uh, we spent most of our lives as horror fans. I mean, agreed. Yes. I know we kind of got into horror movies at different points of time in life, but we find ourselves regularly hanging out discussing horror movies. Yeah, we're, we're the two guys that we get going on a subject and then everybody else wants us to shut up because we go on ad nauseum. Yeah, yeah. and we're thinking if we're going to discuss horror movies, why not share it with other people? Right. So this we're trying the podcast. We're going to see how it's going to go. I am going to warn you, we have never worked in the film industry. Nope. We have no journalism experience. Absolutely not. But like today, we're here to talk to you about slashers, which are my favorite subgenre of horror films. They're great. They're fun. They're cheap to make. Uh, John Carpenter's Halloween in 78 is often cited as the first slasher movie ever made. That is a huge debate for some people because there's Clearly things that came out before Halloween. I guess the question really is, you know, did they contribute to it? Are they fully slasher? And, and you know, there's definitely, I agree there's proto slashers that came before Halloween. Yeah, I, I definitely like the term proto slasher because you really get the elements that are there with it not being solidified yet because that's, it's the birth of something. You don't know where it's going and it had to go somewhere. But looking back on it now, definitely getting to Halloween was an important milestone. Right, because the proto-slashers and even Halloween, you have the killer. The killer has some sort of agenda. involves killing people, generally. <laughs> uh, there's some sort of iconic look and weapon. They don't seem to just go house to house at random. I mean, that does happen sometimes, even in the new Halloween. Uh, but there seems to be like a, a method to it. And my one of my favorite staples of a slasher movie is The Final Girl. Yeah. A lot of the proto-slashers, they have some of these elements and not all of them, or they're pretty close. But something that I get in a debate with, and you might disagree with me, is the killer has to be a little iconic to me and not just some like throwaway whodunit killer. Yes, exactly. It can't be your typical serial killer that's just, that's what they they are. That's what they're doing. There definitely has to be more depth, either be, being in what they are or what they're not as far as having mystery behind the character, more of wanting to know why they're doing it instead of you just have some random person killing people. Right. Um, that That's your murder movie. That's your murder mystery type thing. There's definitely more going on and more offshoots to branch out into for a fully developed character and not just a throwaway person. Right. Like and, and we'll see when I get to Halloween that John Carpenter really just did a lot of things that had been done before him and he just did it right. There's just some little magic formula. But to get to that formula, I mean, 78, we're almost in the 80s at that point. So we got to go through the 60s and the 70s. And uh, in the 60s, 1960, to to be quite literal, um, we had two movies come out three months apart, both British directors. We had Michael Powell and Alfred Alfred Hitchcock. And um, that's Peeping Tom. And then three months later, Psycho. And they weren't, I don't even know if they were aiming to make horror films. At the time, they might have just been thrillers. I don't even know if psychological thrillers was really a thing. I, I don't know. It's It seemed to, at that time, totally different discussion, but something that may have been coming into its own as far as how far a psychological thriller could be pushed at that time. Right, right. A lot of people don't know this, but Michael Powell actually worked under Alfred Hitchcock in the 50s a little bit, and maybe even in the 40s. I'd be one of those people that didn't know that. It's really interesting. The movies came out three months apart, and I would say Psycho is more graphic in some ways than peeping Tom, but then other ways peeping Tom kind of has that like uh Jolo feel to it, you know, where it's just kind of, I don't want to say torture porn because you don't ever actually see anybody get stabbed, but it, it's really interesting because Michael Powell had been nominated for an Oscar, several awards. Okay. Released. 
Keeping Tom destroyed his entire fucking career. <laughs> I mean, I know he never made anything successful after that, but I don't know if he ever got to make anything again after that, which is interesting because three months later, Alfred Hitchcock did a very similar movie and became a star from it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hitchcock was already doing some works of notoriety at that point, I believe. Vertigo came out in 58, I think. Okay. So. That, that's where I was going with because my, my knowledge there is somewhat limited. But like I said, Michael Powell, he decided to kind of just go for it. I don't remember the writer's name. I know he was like a cryptographer during World War II and stuff. So I don't know if that guy had any writing experience before Peeping Tom, but uh, have you seen Peeping Tom, John? I have not. I, I'm hearing about it for the first time. I, I've heard bits and pieces here and there, but it's it's not one that I've actually sat down to watch because I've heard that it's not that great to sit through. It, it is and it isn't like it pretty much got destroyed when it came out by the press and it got pulled from a lot of places. Scorsese down the road, it became like his favorite movie and he actually <laughs> made sure it got a public release. And it's oh. now, I think it's actually like in the classics masterpiece category, but it, I mean, not at its time at all. Yeah, one of those hindsight, oh, we can appreciate this now type things. Uh, yeah, pretty much. But Peeping Tom, it follows a guy named Mark. He works on a film set. I know he was like a photographer and it looks like he does some sort of like focusing on the cameras. I'm not sure on how 1960s cameras work. It might have been 59 when they're filming. A lot of dials, thing. a lot of tubes. Yeah, 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 but he works on a movie set and he seems like a pretty normal guy. He's definitely a loner type, you can tell. But when he's not working and hanging out, you know, on the set at night, he walks around. He's got this camera. That looks ridiculous to me because it's a camera with the tripod attached, but he walks around with it like kind of under his trench coat or the background and he'll stalk women filming them. Okay. And I believe and nobody's noticing this contraption attached they, to it. They, it gets noticed. Walking around like in basket case. But it's, it kind of gives me like a um, Jack the Ripper vibe. You see him walk because it's, it's a British movie. So he's like chasing them. It might be London. He's just walking behind this lady at the beginning. But essentially what happens is he, he follows these women back to their house or takes them to his house. And he'll start filming them in some way because all the women are beautiful. I believe one of them is a prostitute, maybe one of them uh, is a model. One of them might be an actress because he kills three women in the movie. Okay. But what he does is his, he'll start filming them and they know they're being filmed at this point. Like he'll stalk them for a while, but he gets them in a scenario where he's filming them and they're aware of it. And he'll start getting closer and closer at the camera and he'll pop up one of the tripod legs and it has like a switchblade knife in it. And he stabs them with the knife. You never actually see the blood and the knife go in. You might see him standing there afterwards. Yeah. And he has a mirror. And he makes them watch themselves in fear and die. All right. It's, it's pretty deep, pretty dark. You can see how he got in a little bit of little trouble for this. Yeah. Um, but he kills three women throughout the movie uh, doing this. And back at his apartment or flat, I guess we'll go with since It's a British <laughs> movie, right? Uh, he has a, like a, I don't remember if it was hidden or just kind of like a back room. That's like his film room. And he'll watch the videos of the women dying. And I want to say he looks at himself when he's doing it to see his reaction to it. And so he's, is he like full blown jerking it while he's doing this I, or is that implied I or feel like it's mentally implied, but he definitely likes watching the movies. Okay. And he befriends a woman named Helen that lives below him in the apartment or the flat. And, <laughs> and they actually, it's okay, they British with, people, we like you. They hang out a bit. She notices his camera. She actually kind of says something to him about it. And they end up going on a date. She tells him he has to leave the camera behind. And this is where you start to get that. He's kind of like an awkward loner type guy. And they end up back at his apartment at some point, and he's, I don't remember, she ends up watching his snuff films. I don't uh. remember if he plays them or if she finds them, but oh, I got ahead of myself. Briefly before that, you find out, they, they show footage, and I don't know if it's supposed to be like a memory or he's playing a movie. His dad was like a psychologist that worked in fear experimentation uh. and did things to terrify him and record him as a child. So obviously he's fucked up in the head because of his, his father doing these fear experiments on him. 
which he's now in turn doing to these women. So he's growing up to be dad in his own way. Uh, you actually kind of feel sorry for him, which is why I, I definitely put this more like psychological thriller than a full on slasher, because normally you don't feel sol- sorry for the killer necessarily. And there's generally not that much motivation, right? Like it's usually like yeah. revenge for some sort of secondary thing that happened at the at the beginning, yeah. which I guess this kind of is. But you kind of feel sorry for him and you can see why he's like a loner. But he shows her the, vo- the footage and she freaks out and the police are in route and he's like freaking out kind of like he wants to kill her, but he doesn't because she's a good person and he takes his tripod he pops the leg up with the blade out and he throws his throat onto the tripod leg and takes his own life okay and the police come in but like you can see that clearly all this happened because of the trauma that was inflicted on him as a child we we end up with that quote unquote like breaking point and self-sacrifice i mean i guess it's all implied it's not right there overtly but yeah yeah. i mean and then you you see i mean we got a guy and he's killing people okay so we got the killer He's got the tripod with the knife leg, which while being ridiculous and kind of like Rube Goldberg MacGyver, it's a unique weapon. And the movie has lots of POV. Like you see from his point of view because of the camera, like you can actually see, you know, the old cameras that have like the crosshair. Yeah. So you can see the crosshair thing when he's like following the women and it'll cut from like outside when he's killing a woman in the back to it. So that's really, to me, the first POV kill scene. Somebody out there might email me and say this jalo film in the 60s to this and I, or the 50s and i don't know about it but i mean we can't know all movies but it but it's an anchor point in the film of having it based on that shot where you're getting the pov shot through the kills right the, right quote unquote the killer's point of view and there was a press screening for the movie and they just tore the director and this movie apart and i don't think it was actually in theaters very long and it might have been kind of hard to see hmm. and then we fast forward to three months later and you see some very similar themes and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Yeah, okay. So to talk about Psycho, the first thing I have to say is that poor dumb girl. I have to jump straight to the scene of her. She gets to the hotel, which I'll backtrack here a little bit. But she's there. She goes into the back room with Norman Bates. And he's commenting on how she's eating like a bird. And even goes into talking about the irony of it because birds don't, you know, get Eat little much. bites. They're, they're more like, arr, 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 just ch- chowing it down. Meanwhile, they're surrounded by all these stuffed and mounted birds that he talks about. That's what he's into, that he does taxidermy. And it's, it's his hobby and blah, blah, blah. You know there's something off about the guy already. I feel uh, like an idiot because I've seen this movie a lot and I was kind of jealous that I gave you Psycho. Uh, <laughs> so I watched it last night, even though I didn't have to. And I mean, I'm, it's kind of an uncomfortable scene. I'm talking about the taxidermy hobby and she trying to just nicely relate to him while eating her sandwich. And I didn't really put together that he's like, you're my prey in this room, you know, kind of thing. So that's interesting. Yeah. I never even thought of that. Yeah, there, there's one part when during the conversation where he actually starts petting one of the birds uh, on the, the desk or whatever there. But anyways, I just have to make sure I bring that up. So um, I never actually saw this movie back in the day. Um, I'd seen the iconic shower scene like everybody has. And even some people make the noise and do the motion and don't even know what it's from. But when you say back in the day, when did you see it um, for the first time? I don't know, maybe three days ago, two, three days ago. So we've known each other like (laughs) 30 something years and you Love horror movies. I didn't know you'd never seen Psycho. Wait till we talk about Exorcist. Um, <laughs> anyways, to go back, you know, the, a quick synopsis here is so we've got a woman that, you know, Marion Crane, who appears to not be too happy with her job, more implied, not said real asshole character comes in throwing around his money. I think it was 40 grand. It, it is 40 grand. I looked inflation 2016 it was roughly $330,000. Okay. So it's nothing, nothing to don't know what the word is, but it's a lot of fucking money. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyways, she, she has this moment where she's supposed to go deposit the money and she's like, well, F this. I'm, I'm, she has this moment in her brain where she's like, I'm going to take this money and she's going presumably towards to 
Sear boy toy, um, the town that he lives in. And she stops. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the boy toy, I never caught this in the last night. His name's Sam Loomis. Yes, because it's the, the hardware store. <laughs> yeah, Sam Loomis hardware. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I didn't yeah. interrupt you. I, I, I was like, Dr. Loomis. See, and that's the thing, man. There's so much stuff that as you go on through the years, there's so much intertwined stuff and little tips like that. Like, okay, I'm fixing to admit it. Like, we all go a little mad sometimes. Right, right. I had no clue that was from Psycho. I, I never knew that. You used to quote that, like in the 90s. I didn't well, know you didn't know it was from. Well, it was you Dunning, were quoting Scream? <laughs> it was Dunnigan and Scream, exactly. Billy like, Loomis and Scream, by the way. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, well, what the hell? So she's driving along. Um, one of the great things that set up in that movie as far as suspense moving on over into terror and setting atmosphere, which is something that's really needed in a slasher film to set it apart from just being a murder movie. When she's driving and she's doing like the internal, it's not really an internal monologue, but it's the voices of the other characters, like discovering what she's done while she's away. This is after she's switched cars at the car dealership and being followed by the right. cop and all that. And it it really sucks you in into feeling like you're in that space. And that's something that was going to start to become much more important later on in movies to set them apart, in my opinion. But anyways, it moves us on to her encounter with the damaged goods that that is Norman Bates, who's going on and on about his mother, who you later find out is actually deceased and then later find out he actually murdered and has been going along, playing along with this broken split personality type thing. Right. Um, Do you think we should have probably mentioned spoilers at the beginning of this podcast? Eh, it's too late now. Uh, it's too late. I'm, I'm just going to keep on going. I, I feel like I'm dragging on here a little bit. But uh, what it what it seems to show is is real world. It doesn't have to be some supernatural far off thing to actually have a slasher. The terror, the dread, I, I don't want to say making it more classy, but but really pulling you in to where you care more about what's going on. And that starts to become really important with your your slasher killers is you're going to start caring about them as what they are, why they're there. Right. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Like these are not the first horror films. There were plenty of yeah. horror films in the forties and the fifties, but they generally had a monster. You had Nosferatu, you had Dracula, the Wolfman. Yes. Yeah, so you had your, your, your silver age, your golden age, but nobody. And, and I, I believe at least that the psychological stuff was kind of going on beside it, but it was, it was dramas. Yeah, you it had really actual like, drama the, like film noir, like actual detective whodunit yeah. movies. But these movies were making like the killers. It was very graphic. You could see it. And the monsters were human. So um, the shower scene happens over in the movie. I got to talk about it. It's, it's the thing that everybody talks about. We never really see any violence there. I believe it was something like chocolate syrup that was used for yeah, the blood. It was black and seen. white. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, black and white. So it works. Made lighting a lot easier um, from what I understand. The cinematography is insane. The, right. It is. There's especially just the openings, like the long shot across the cityscape and then coming into the window and pulling right, right. in. No, the whole movie cinematography is beautiful, but the shower scene, even before the stabbing, like you see, I want to say like 12 different cuts of different oh, yeah. camera angles around her before it even rotates around where you can see the door. And I'm like, was this done to this extent before that? I'd be really curious to to see but it's, it's sorry <laughs> oh, no, no no you're all right so you know and that's the scene that happens with her murder and then he cleans up the body and then throws the car out in the swamp that looks like a damn tar pit but anyways so we've got that iconic scene that i have to bring up that uh the annual halloween party that i have i've even got a shower curtain with a sensor on it you open the door it plays the music it does the shrieks and everything but i swear if you look at there's a silhouette on it of a figure with the kitchen knife that if you look at the hair it's michael myers it's mikey <laughs> <laughs> It's like a, it's a knockoff. It's Mikey. But anyways, um, it was a good setup to kind of get everybody ready, not only in the film industry, I guess, but the audience at large of what was really fixing to happen in the seventies. Right. 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 And the seventies, like that is 
I mean, it, it started to build up. The 80s is when the shit hit the fan, and we'll yeah. hit that on episode two. But um, I did, like, if you really think about it, though, both movies, both uh, Psycho and Peeping Tom, you got a loner, right? Like, it's British directors from this movie. They work together in the past. I wonder if they discuss it. But you got the loner that has issues with their parents, and then they go and they kill people. You know, and it's just like, yeah. they're, they're kind of similar. Um, I do know, I, I actually looked this up last night. I was thinking about how similar Norman Bates was to Ed Gein. Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm referring to? He's like, yeah, 1906, I think he was killed. But somewhere, he was around that time. He was a big, one of the first serial it, killers. Yeah, it was like late 50s when they got him or when everything kind of exploded with him or everything. Right, right. But he was, he was a serial killer and a grave robber. Yeah. And he had like fucked up mom issues. And I want to say like he talked to his mom and stuff like that. And he, uh, Leatherface is actually slightly based off of him because he had furniture made out of body parts. Exactly. So it's, I looked and Alfred Hitchcock actually did base it off Ed Gein. Basically. Okay. It's not like a retelling of the Ed Gein story, but. Uh, but it was something to put that setting, that frame of yeah. mind, that development. He read about Ed Gein and he's like, oh, I got an idea. And he made fucking Psycho, <laughs> which is an awesome movie. But when, when you get into the 70s, I feel like it, it's still a little bit of the psychological thriller but they're starting to really kind of turn them into horror movies and, and pump up the dial. I would say the you got three big milestones, I think, in the 70s. Two of them are in 74, which was Black Christmas and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know what's up with horror movies, like iconic slasher movies, proto-slashers coming out three months apart, but they <laughs> did it there. Um, but they both clearly influenced the, the horror genre going forward. Uh, oh, yeah. Up to Halloween in 78 and then and then going forward past that, even I would say up to Scream, even uh, oh, you'll absolutely. find some slim similarities. I'm going to talk about Black Christmas at first. I, I want to say I saw this movie in pieces as a teenager, but when reading some um, some slasher books recently and doing a little research for the podcast, I decided to go back and rewatch it because everybody always talks about this is the first slasher movie. And really. John Carpenter took a lot from this movie. I feel <laughs> the movie, like I said, it's made in 74. It's made by Bob Clark as the director. And if that name is familiar to you, Bob Clark's a Christmas story, you'll shoot yep. your eye out kid. So apparently he likes Christmas, right? <laughs> so he makes Christmas movies, but they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And it really was a good movie. The only problem I'd say like Halloween, if you have somebody who's never seen Halloween, you can just like put it in and it holds the test of time. When you watch black Christmas, it is fucking seventies. Like just, you jump right into it, the overacting and, and everything. But the movie, like it opens up, you see a sorority house, you hear heavy breathing and it's POV again. We got the point of view of the killer and he climbs up in the attic and you see the, uh, you know, the girls hanging out in the house. So you can kind of get a feel for them. One of them, I remember, uh, I happened to watch Romeo and Juliet when I was a kid and it's Juliet. Right? <laughs> uh, and then you got Margot Kidder. So that was Lois yep. Lane, who is just ridiculously plastered drunk the entire movie. Yep. <laughs> and they're hanging out in the house. So you kind of get a vibe for them. And the phone rings and they get this, this prank call and it's insane. It's really, I mean, there's some C bombs in there and all sorts of stuff. It's really vulgar. And the voice keeps changing. And what I looked up at, it's two men and a woman's voice and they kind of like swap them and modulate them a lot. And, and it's really disturbing the way it sounds. And yeah, um, that, that in the context of, of what's being said, cause you're right. I mean, it's highly sexualized, high, <laughs> highly derogative towards women. Um, <laughs> and so you start getting the Agnes Billy conversations, good old Billy, but I, I guess it's the killer's <laughs> name. I guess he's Billy. And when I heard that, I felt like clearly Wes Craven kind of was influenced a little bit for the voice but, modulation on the killer on the phone with the crank calls. Yeah. Not as vulgar crank calls, but you know, it's more like trivial pursuit with uh, a <laughs> possible death ensuing. Uh, you know, they get this crank call and they're like, oh, another one. So clearly it's been happening to them. And at some point, uh, one of the girls, I think her name's Claire, 
is up in um, a room and the killer is hiding behind a piece of plastic and he comes out of the plastic and grabs her and she screams. And I guess nobody hears it. And it, it does a, a pull away shot in the attic and she's in a rocking chair with plastic around her and she's dead. Yeah. She never, she never poked the, the hole in, right, the, right. in the plastic. You, you could have binded her hands. We, that's the thing. Eh, you, you just see you the plastic. Yeah. You yeah. don't, you don't see how it actually goes down. You just see her after the fact. Yeah. The aftermath and the girls at some point, they realize she's missing, but they think she's with her boyfriend or at a Christmas party. Cause it's a sorority house. There's frat houses. It's Christmas break. Yeah, right. People come and go. And then the father shows up. I guess they were supposed to meet for something. And they're like, oh no, she might actually be missing. Yeah. And they go to the police station with the father to follow report. And you find out, I think you find out there's possibly another girl missing and the cop, the sheriff, I guess, or the police captain, it's actually John Saxton, which is yep. the, uh, he's Nancy's father in, in Iron Man Street. So I thought that was yep. kind of neat. There's one cop that's kind of clueless and they're following the port and Margot Kidder starts messing with them. Like the address is like the, fellatio. The fellatio thing. Yeah. yeah. She's like, it's a new postcode. And, uh, he's so dumb. He doesn't get it. Cause the cops are pretty dumb. There's dead bodies in the attic and they show up at the house, uh, to, I think take reports for Claire missing and they, they don't. You yeah, can check they the do attic. a real shit job of searching the place. They don't smell the corpse, but I think it's like all, I think this movie takes place over 24, 48 hours. That's right. Yeah. Like a night or two is what it felt like. But you, you know, you see these girls, you see a, a terrible den mother. Like she's <laughs> drunk half the time too. This fucking cat that everybody's obsessed with finding <laughs> for some reason, Margot Kidder just completely getting hammered. There's a side story with Jess. I remember this name real easy. Uh, she's, she's your final girl of the movie yeah. basically, but she, um, She's pregnant. She wants to have an abortion. Yep. Her boyfriend, Peter, is a composer or a piano player. She goes and tells him that she's having an abortion. He gets angry about yeah, it. He is not cool he's, about it. He is not happy with it. He's, I'll, I'll quit my career and raise this kid. And she's just not interested in it. And the police actually think Peter is the killer for part of the movie. It's kind of a red herring. Yeah. They keep getting the crank calls and she realizes that he was in the house one time. So she thinks it might not be him. Um, and they actually kind of make a point of that. I, don't, I want to come back to that. But that's one red herring. And then a, a dead body's found in the park. Yeah, which I, I think they say it's a girl or a little girl. It's a girl. So then they go with the police and they find out it's another girl. So it was like another red herring. Okay. Kind of thrown in the movie. But somewhere throughout there, the den mother, I can't think of her name right now, but she takes a, a hook in the attic to the face as she climbs up the ladder. So she's dead in there. Nobody smells that body. No thermos. <laughs> and Margot Kidder just. Somebody should smell the booze. <laughs> right. Well, Margot Kidder passes out, just blacked out drunk. And there's like all these crystal like unicorn statues and stuff yes. in the room. Now, where you're fixing to go, this part I actually liked. The, mo the movie, like, it doesn't hold up well, and it was kind of a eh, whatever. But, sorry, do go on. I no, did, no, it's, I, it's, I did like this part. Margot Kidder, just, she gets stabbed to death by the horn, and then they get rid of that body. Like, nobody even realizes she's gone. That's what's kind of weird of a slasher movie, because nobody realizes they're getting picked off, really. Like, all these yeah. people are dying. They continue to get crank calls. The police chief or captain or whatever, sheriff, tells them to keep the killer on the phone longer. Like, th as the calls keep going on throughout the movie. Yeah, because they're they're trying to trace the call, and of course it's the '70s, so it's a mechanical switch room. So you got the guy running around right. in the telephone office trying to figure out which rotary switcher is actually on that line, which is kind of funny in and of itself. Right, right. And like one or two times they tell uh, Jess that she didn't keep him on the phone long enough. And then there's a a final phone call. She keeps on the phone. They track it down, and then you get like the iconic the killer's in the house. He's calling from in the house. Don't get me started on that because this brings the attic back into play in a yeah. minute. But, uh, so call Jess and they tell it's the dumb cop, the yeah. fellatio drive cop or whatever. Exactly. And, and they're like, don't tell her there's a killer. <laughs> yeah, just get out of the house. That's the one thing they tell him not to say. And, and, and she won't get out of the house. Yeah. And then he eventually says the killer's in the house. Get out of there. And she goes to run and she sees like the eyeball looking. It kind of looks like Peter's hair, right? Like, yeah, like it's another they, red They hair. really make you try to think that it's him a couple of times 
in in this sequence. And she gets a weapon. I want to say it's like a fire poker. Ends up in the basement, which is yep. a terrible place to hide. Like they point that out in Night of the Living Dead, right? You know, like don't wait in the basement. <laughs> so she goes to the basement and Peter comes down looking for her. And he's like, hey, what are you doing back there? Are you okay? And he walks up. And then you see the police car pulling up to the house outside. And you hear a blood-curdling scream. Go in the house. And Peter's dead. And she's yep. laying unconscious next to him. They carry her up to the bed. They, like, say they want to interview her and this, this, and that. And I, I want to say Mr. Harrison clears father's in there. And he faints. And they, they get everybody out of the house because they got to take him out. And I, I guess they think Peter's the killer. And I, I want to point out, she is the one that says... Peter was in the house and I got a phone call. It couldn't have been him. Ah, so I don't think she thought he was the killer when she killed him. Yeah. And, and, but you're right though. It's one of the officers there at the end of the movie is like, Oh, she got him. You know? So it's like, Oh, let's put a bow on this. We're all done. Yeah. yeah. So like, I really don't think she thought he was the killer when she killed him. So that's, that's a, a thing to think of, but the police leave and you start hearing like heavy breathing. Uh, the camera starts going room to room yep. throughout the house, which both of these things happen in Halloween. And uh, so there's got to be some influence there. And then you hear the Agnes Billy conversation going on with the creepy yep. voices. And then it goes up to the attic with the dead bodies that nobody still failed. They don't even notice these people are missing, apparently. No. And the phone starts ringing to let you know that the killer's out there. You heard him talking. You heard the phone ringing. But I yep. mean, that, that's the movie. It's actually a pretty good movie. And I watched it twice in the past two weeks. It's all right for what it is. And in the, the slasher genre, an important film, because like you said, there's going to be films that harken back to it in several different ways. The only thing I didn't like is I didn't care about the characters. Right. Um, I kind of cared about Jess a little bit. She was the only one that they really centered on. But if she's going to be the final girl, that's the one to center on. But is she also a killer? So she's kind of a weird <sighs> spot for final girls. She is, but we really hadn't. Haven't really solidified the That's formula yet. yet. <laughs> it's not a thing yet. You know, you're right. Uh, but we we saw some of those, those same influence. We saw the POV of the killer, like it's popping up again. The movie had some pretty eerie music and sounds. Yeah. And really psycho did like the crazy violins and stuff like it. it I feel like it started that. I'm going to say that earlier. Yeah. It just did it too many damn times. It's but. definitely like a psychological thriller again, I feel like, but he's kind of crazy and iconic. Billy's Billy's kind of iconic to me because <laughs> the crazy voices and stuff, you don't see a cool costume. He used whatever weapon he could in the house. Yeah. And like I said, you, a lot of those things you saw in John Carpenter's Halloween and Wes Craven had, to have, I mean, he's not alive for us to ask, but he had to have been influenced for the, the voice modulation. Uh, but yeah, it's, it was a pretty solid flick. Feels a little dated. I'm I'm glad I finally yeah. watched it. But then just three short months later, we get our favorite chainsaw wielding hillbilly and Toby Hooper's <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is fucking awesome. Yeah. So I like to refer to this as the ultimate get off my lawn movie, because if if you look at it. Okay, so we got the crazy redneck cannibal family with the barbecue shop down the street or whatever, but they're just there doing their thing. So we got this group of kids that are on the road to go visit grandpa's grave that may or may not have just been desecrated. I know that's what was going on in the opening of the movie. And uh, we get the the harbinger, I guess, maybe the doomsayer. Um, I like call him Doomsayer. Yeah. Dude from the slaughterhouse that ends up in the van that's, you know, goes ahead and he takes Franklin's knife, cuts his hand open, then pulls out his knife. And does he go back to the other knife? Anyways, he goes, he grabs Franklin's arm, cuts him too. So they're yeah. like, okay, this guy's been rambling about killing cows and now he's cutting people. Now it's time to get him out of the van. And this, that scene, it really, I watched that movie every couple of years and I just watched it a few months ago. It, that scene makes me uncomfortable. Like it's the first like, slasher horror movie thing that I felt uncomfortable with a couple of scenes, but yeah. just that van while you're there, I want to say I'm uncomfortable every time I watch it. It doesn't get 
less uncomfortable. There are now this is one that I had actually seen long ago and seen in pieces and did recently rewatch just to kind of get my head wrapped back around it. There are some different spots in this movie where I come back to real uncomfortableness, like Last House on the Left-esque uncomfortableness. Not as much as that movie, but it it does come up and uh, it happens in the van. I guess being into horror movies, you know, it's one of those times where you, you know what's going on and you just want to scream at people. It's like, okay, it's obvious. One, you should have never picked the guy up. Two, why is he still in here as soon as he cut himself? Right. But they end up throwing him out. They end up stopped at the old family house. A couple of the kids go wandering off looking for the swimming hole. And uh, I think, and this, I don't remember names on this one, but uh, it's the dude that goes in the house first. And who does he find? Leatherface. And what's Leatherface do? Get out of my house. You know. And we got our first kill, or at least <laughs> severely knocked the hell out. Right, right. Um, but gets him up on the table. The girlfriend goes following in. She's the one that gets picked up and thrown on the meat hook. But but one by one, we got these people that are just like wandering off onto these other people's property. It's the wrong fucking people to be wandering off onto right, the property. Right. But we end up with the brother and sister, uh, Sally and Franklin, who's were the ones going to see grandpa's grave right. or whatever. So there's really not much that goes on. It's kind of just drawn out and them getting into the house and everything. So it's, it's finally nightfall. They go off looking for the others. They find Leatherface. <laughs> um, and Franklin quickly gets gutted by a chainsaw. If I remember right. That, that's one thing I think that separates this movie a little differently from slashers and other proto slashers for the most part. I, I guess psycho's the same way, but Bubba, I don't, I think they gave him a name in a prequel recently. We always called him Bubba growing up. He, uh, he's not really stalking people. He's just trying to fucking hang out at his house and these people show up and he just kills them for breaking in. Right. Yeah. Well, that's why I like to call it the get off my lawn movie, but it's, uh, but we do have our, we have our slasher character. Right. We we really do. We may not have the whole thing for the movie, but we really do have that character who the environment around them quickly shows you what's going on. He's wearing a mask made out of human flesh. Yeah. (laughs) And then by the time it gets to towards the end of the movie, once Sally, the last girl's actually captured and brought in and they're all around the dinner table oh. and it's like, oh shit, this is what's fixing to go down. She gets her finger cut. Now I was reading about this, that that seems 100% legit. Oh really? That there was supposed, there was tape on the knife and it was so hot in Texas that the blood tube rig kept coagulating and oh my God, what was the guy who played Leatherface? I'm having complete brain fart on his name. Gunner Hansen. Thank you. Okay. Um, Gunner finally said, I've had enough of this because he suffered more than anybody else in his get up. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. pulled the tape off the knife, cut her finger, and shoved her bleeding finger into grandpa's mouth. That's fucked up. Um it's don't, unsanitary. Don't <laughs> <laughs> So you got to wonder, I mean, she's being held down and gagged while all this is going on. It's the seventies. Okay. There's a very good chance that this actually happened, but at any rate, she's fixing to become our straight up final girl because she wrestles her way away while grandpa feebly tries to bust her head open with the hammer. That's the other scene that makes me very <laughs> uncomfortable because they're basically like lifting his dead weight arm and just gravity kicks in and it's just like clunk. And it, it looks so real. Like her just getting like tagged with his hammer. It would have to be, like uh torturous pain. I feel yeah. like like not enough to like do anything bad, but enough to just like torture you. Yeah, it's one of those it's like, ah, like I'd much rather be dead or unconscious right now. Please either stop or hit me harder. But uh so she manages to run away and is being chased by our slaughterhouse hitchhiker and leatherface. Um they run out into the street, our hitchhiker gets hit and run over by an 18 wheeler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um which they set it up where you think you're not going to see it because the shot's through the windshield of the right. truck. And then all of a sudden it cuts to the reverse and it's all to dunk, to dunk, to dunk. 
which is, I thought it was neat. I like that. But then a pickup truck comes flying by from the other way. Sally hops in the truck. They boogie off into the sunset, which is really weird because we just went from night into morning, but then all of a sudden it's dark again. And uh, Leatherface dances around in his angry chainsaw dance. <laughs> Some reason I thought he got road. hit by a truck and cut his own leg with the chainsaw a little bit. He, does, he, he falls down when the trucker, she, the trucker that hits the hitchhiker stops mm-hmm. and pulls Sally in and they both go out the opposite side of the truck and uh-huh. Leatherface is right there and gets knocked down and that's okay, when he okay. cuts his leg with the chainsaw. And then bit. he does a little dance, you know, the dancing yes. queen, you know, <laughs> he breaks out with the chainsaw. But, uh, so we've got our slasher that's a character. Um, Definitely that, iconic. Totally iconic, you know, quote unquote instant classic. We have our legit final girl who comes into her own at the end out of necessity. She actually escapes the house once. And goes to the dude at the shop or the store or right, whatever, right. thinking everything's going to be ends okay. And up being like Bubba's dad. Exactly. Um, she's definitely a final girl because she is the final one to make out and survive. <laughs> but she doesn't have like the, she doesn't really fight the the slasher like you see in like future movies. No, she's not necessarily like outsmarting the slasher or really thinking this through to be the the heroine that we end up having with the final girl. But she does get away. So anyways, um, with this movie, what we see is a lot of the pieces starting to fall into place for what's going to happen. And we got another movie maker and a William Shatner mask, which kind of became the turning point. Became the standard, the, the gold standard, standard, the gold right, standard. Right, right. Um, Halloween is often cited as the first slasher movie. There were things that led up to it, but like I said earlier, there's a magic formula that John Carpenter found and he just kind of put it together. There's a couple movies that without exaggerating, I can say I've seen a hundred times and Halloween is one of them screams another, but I break out this movie. I watch it throughout the year. I have a tradition where I watch it every Halloween night. Anytime I hear somebody hasn't seen it and my small children aren't around, I break it out and watch it. I like to discuss it with people. I'm so pumped when they made the new sequel. And unlike Black Christmas, I might have said this earlier, but it doesn't feel dated when you watch it. Like the clothes, right? Like maybe their outfits. Well, yeah, but- yeah, yeah. But as, 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 far as, as far as it stands the test of time. Right, right, right. It, like it, it feels really solid, you know, when you go in and watch this movie. I'm going to have a hard time, like, not just just going all in on this movie. So you're going to have to like reel me back. You're going to, you're going to have to keep me calm down on it because this is my favorite movie and I know so much about it and I don't want to overdo it, especially since the Halloween franchise will come up in future episodes. Yeah. But yeah, like it, it just worked. He was pretty fresh out of film school. I think he had made like assault on precinct 13 or something before he was looking to make the fog, I think, or, or not the fog. I'm sorry. Um, the thing. I think he was like already putting feelers out for doing that. And a producer, I can't think of his name right now, called him up and said, Hey, I got an idea. Let's make a movie on, uh, on Halloween night. Like he just thought it was a good idea. Uh, it's a holiday. Let's do it. And they had a very simple premise, man stalks and kills babysitters. Like that was it. Like yeah. the whole movie. And, and John took Deborah Hill. I believe they had worked on some other films together and they got together and they had a It was a $300,000 budget, which I think even in 78 was like a small budget. Yeah. It ended up being three twenty five dollars because they had to pay uh, Donald Pleasant $25,000 to come in and and record. They did it in 21 days. Yeah. Yeah. I was to say the ridiculous shooting schedule. Yeah. 21 days. I think Donald Pleasant was only there for like three of the days. Had his own trailer and everything, uh, unlike everybody else. One of the girls, Annie, is the producer's. And like I, he worked with John Carpenter, I think I'm saying right now, but it was his wife, right? Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis, they got her just because her mom yeah. <laughs> you know, was in Psycho. They yeah. grabbed her. She was got to mention that earlier. <laughs> um, they had to buy their own clothes, right? So like they just went in, and I feel like John Carpenter just kind of winged it. 
And what he ended up doing is he made the killer that is like the rock star. Like he made an iconic killer, cool mask, William Shatner mask. Like he said, they tore <laughs> off the eyebrows, spray painted it white, uh, took the sideburns off, spray painted the hair darker, you know, cut the eye holes open. And it's just creepy as fuck because John Carpenter wanted him to be the shape. He didn't want a backstory. He didn't want any reason for yeah. it. He just wanted this, this killing machine. You know, the movie opens up, you see the really short POV, but it's a POV again. We're getting yep. it just like Black Christmas and just a little bit like Peep and Tom. And you see, you know, a couple making out and they go upstairs to have sex. You see a hand get a knife. It's actually Deborah Hill's hand, by the way. She don't have the only hand small enough. And you literally, you see this knife come down and you see the violent stabbing of this naked girl upstairs. After the boyfriend leaves, yeah. right? you see the violent stabbing and she's dead. And then the, the eyes go outside and you see cars pull up and there's this little boy standing there. I want to say he's like eight or nine. Yeah, the clown he's, costume. He's yeah, yeah, and even you know the they used was like a Panavision camera, right? Like it was they didn't want to use the dollies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was the 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 Panaglide, the Panaglide, uh, yeah. the, the competitor to the Cityam. Right. So they you know they could move around the house and get these tight shots, and you see this kid in a clown costume, which you saw the actual mask get put on the camera, which is kind of neat. Stand with a knife, and they're like Michael, you know, and and then they time lapse it and cut ahead and. Of course, he's a psychiatric patient and he's got Dr. Loomis, which I would say it's like, a, I'm going to use a term from um, behind the mask, but he's like the Ahab, right? Like he's hunting <laughs> down the killer, but he's talking about how dangerous Michael is and he doesn't want him to get out. And of course, he breaks out of the insane asylum and he knows he's going for Haddonfield, right? Which uh, I think was actually, was it California they filmed it in or Florida? It's supposed to be, wherever it is, there's palm trees in the background yeah, and they had to like fly leaves in. Yeah, because right? there was the leaves no, up. no leaves. They had to like bag them back up and re-blow them for each take. Yeah. But you get these really cool like stalking scenes where like you see Michael step into the frame, like where he's not there and he just kind of steps into the frame. And, and I thought that was kind of newer. Like, I don't remember seeing that before that, but it's creepy. And John Carpenter's fucking fantastic score, which I think is going to go down as one of the best scores of all time. And I know I'm, you know, I'm kind of biased on this, but yeah. it is accepted as that. And it's but just that, so creepy. And that was, didn't he write and record that over like a weekend? Yeah, he did it pretty quickly. And it's, I can't think of the, oh, I'm going to get so mad. I can't think of the name. He put like a fake band name. And, uh, and that's like in the credits and oh, everything, okay. but you know, like, you, you know, get the, da-da, you know, when he steps in a frame and it's so creepy and people like every, I've read several <laughs> reviews and, and things like in 78, when this movie came out, lines wrapped around the corner, it made a ridiculous amount of money, like 20 something million dollars, I think, which is a lot, you know? Yeah. And this, and it, it wasn't expected because right, it, right. it was just another to, to the industry. It was just another throwaway horror film you right know, it's another killer film blah blah whatever we'll, we'll make a little money it didn't cost much to shoot and then you can move on and do something else right and so the movie like everybody walks out of seeing the movie they're talking about oh my god the movie's a bloodbath well there's only four people killed the movie i think yeah. his sister judith at the beginning um linda and bob got your ghost bob uh <laughs> and annie right yeah, yeah so four people are killed in the movie there's very little blood you see a little blood on a sister at the beginning yeah. like aftermath and then like jamie the curtis getting her arm cut and stuff but uh, it's yeah. really funny. Like people thought it was a bloodbath because it just did that to them mentally when he saw that movie. Exactly. It's definitely nothing like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which by today's standards, he's even wasn't even that gory. But it, the meat hook still gets me a little bit when he hangs her on the yeah. hook. You got people like feeling this way from seeing this movie, even though it, it's not really that bad. But it's just the music, the tone, the mask, the costume all kind of get you. And you watch these people get picked off one by one and there's no reason for it. Like you see him, you know, it's it's like a lot of slasher movies. There's a past tragedy and then you time lapse. Right. Yeah. But the tragedy usually happens to the person and turns them into the killer. The tragedy of Michael Myers as a child is he was a killer. Yeah. Right. Like, so that's, that's like he's, he's just pure evil, you exactly. know, the blackest eyes. Right. So he just goes in and he's killing these people with no reason. He's stalking them. There's really cool cinematography. Like when Jamie Lee's standing by the, the dark 
doorway and you see the the mass just step into the light step into the light and then um a couple new elements come in that you don't see like the final girl like fights i mean she fights him she stabs him in the neck with like a knitting needle she's pretty smart she runs upstairs and opens the balcony like she went out the stair there but hidden uh in the closet yep ties it up with a clothes hanger she gets him in the eye with a clothes hanger and she stabs him with his own knife right because he drops the knife in the closet and she gets him and you think he's dead and you've got jamie lee curtis sitting there you know crying sitting on the steps of the house and you can see out of focus michael laying in the background you're like donut and he sets up yeah and that's probably the first time the dead killer came back yeah right right and it's so fucking creepy and she has no clue he's there she gets stabbed and dr loomis of course comes in and, and shoots him and he falls off the balcony and we get the classic you know is that the boogeyman yeah Which i love that line um <laughs> And we also get like, a, I'll be right back. Like, I, I think that was the first movie that did it because Bob, when he goes to get the beer, right? Yep. And you get that cool head, head tilt scene after Michael impales him with like a katana blade long <laughs> kitchen knife, if you think about it. Um, but, you know, and, and Jason Voorhees knife. Right, right, right. And he's like, uh, yeah, I think it was the boogeyman. And then you look over the balcony and he's not he fucking gone. there. Yeah. And that's got to be, I, I really think that was the first time you saw that happening in this kind of movie, unless it was like a monster movie, right? Yeah. We have the credits rolling and we see the camera pan from room to room, just like at the end of Black Christmas and you hear the heavy breathing and you know he's out there. And then the yeah. fucking score kicks in again. <laughs> so that movie, I mean, it, it used the POV. It used the the creepy score. I mean, Norman Bates had you know the mom costume and, and of course Leatherface had the human flesh yeah, mask, yeah. but like the face face. The, the shapeless face with no features was just creepy. And I mean, he didn't reinvent the wheel. He used things yeah. that were there before. I mean, he added the killer getting back up and like there actually being somebody hunting the killer know about it. But it's because we finally had a, an iconic killer, famous yeah. serial killer. He's got all these little niche special things about him and he has to have a guy to track him down. I mean, what do you feel that Halloween did different than the proto slashers before it? Well, it's like you said, there's a lot of elements that all kind of came together and be it. We all know with with art, it's never happens like as planned. You know, the the shooting schedule and the budget is why they had to use the the Panaglide cam. Um, You don't have the time or the money to set up for a bunch of coverage or set up a bunch of long tracking shots. And it gets used to an advantage in a great way in that movie, especially with the opening, because you're just like, okay. I'm following along, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. mask comes on, right? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there's the reveal. It's like, oh, I just saw this shit go down and this is a kid. And then we just jump to later. Like, we don't know why he did it. And we never get told why he did it. We purposely aren't talking about sequels on on this episode. Like, when we do whole franchises, we will. But since we're trying to, like, talk about influences, (laughs) none of these movies knew there was going to be a part two when they made a part one. So. With the exception of Friday the 13th, we might have to dip a little <laughs> bit past the first one there to get to Jason. They just, they were making a movie and it was supposed yeah. to be, you know, just a one-off though. But, uh, so we had great opportunity there that got set up to, to make you feel like you're, you're either there in, in person with the perspective or you're actually riding along with the killer. Great mystery that we have here with the slasher. Cause it's not explained. He's not, oh, he's a cannibal. He kills and eats people. It's right, not, right. it's not, oh, m- mommy didn't love him enough. So this is, you know, it's just. He just is. He's evil. He's no rhyme, just yeah. pure evil. No rhyme, no reason. Uh, um, even uh, it, it was, I mean, Leatherface was the first not whodunit killer, right? But like yeah. it, it decided to like drop the shackles of the whodunit, you know? And, and <laughs> we end up now. The other part about this is diving into as far as, as slashers go, you know, not just our, our slasher character, but slashers, the movies, the final girl. Okay. Now we get a girl that we actually we care about. Right. Um, Cause we've got 
anywhere USA and it's the, the kids next door. Right. We get enough time with them in the movie for it to feel like this is anybody anywhere. Um, I care about her. I feel like when younger generations watch this movie, like when my wife sat and watched it, cause she saw the Rob zombie one first. Anyways. Oh, don't get me started on that travesty. <laughs> but uh, she's like, this is boring. This is boring. This is boring. It's like, you got to put yourself in the mindset of when this movie came out and what it was doing at the time. You got to go for the ride. And I understand how when you've been Michael Bade and shit, that it's hard to just let a movie <laughs> take you for the ride. So you're invested and you watch this girl figure out she's got it. Get the kids over here. I'm going to chase you. You're not going to run me off. I'm going to get your ass. She's really smart. And they show that when you see the girls. I didn't really mention the girls to the movie. You know, you got like the. The slutty cheerleader, I hate to say it that way, but that's how she was designed. Yeah. You know, you got like the smart ass sheriff's daughter and then you got the bookworm. Yep. Right. And, you know, and, and like the bookworm skills come to play and then you get this badass final girl that protects the children at all costs, actually hurts the killer. Right. Yep. Thinks she kills him, gets away. And she's probably one of the most badass final girls. I'm going to have to look at the list. I don't know if we have like best final girls. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know where I'm going to go on this one. <laughs> We're going to have to do a final <laughs> girls episode. I feel yes, like. absolutely. And, and we can have it lead into the final girl. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that yet, actually. I'm going to watch that when we get to horror comedies. You need so. to. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it on uh, this one. Uh, anything more you want to throw in? No, I mean, I just, uh, how do you, how do you feel like the first episode went? Since you can't like see through speakers, I'm just seeing how much sweat there is in my armpits and there's not. So I think, think I did pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think it pr <laughs> went pretty well. I mean, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I'm glad we finally set it on do it. It was going to be me solo of, at first. And then I got, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about getting Josh, my cousin, whose fucking house looks like a horror movie year round. And he was married on Halloween to do it with me. But, uh, we were doing a lot of planning getting the equipment. Uh, I think I did too much research on this one and too much script writing. I'm glad we kind of winged it. Uh, I'm glad the jitters are gone. So yeah, a uh, little jitters at first. Um, I think Netflix has ruined my brain mm -hmm. because it's given me easy access to a lot of shitty horror movies. Oh yeah. I try to avoid those. So it all, well, the, the wife and I have shitty movie Sunday, yeah. um, which just kind of <laughs> came to be because Sundays we sit and watch movies and it's going to be horror movies and there's a lot of turds on there. So it, it made the brain kind of mushy. And uh, this was really good to go back and actually go back and, and revisit some things and, and really look at them for what they were and what they are and what they've done in the industry and in the genre and subgenre. And it was nice. It was, it was fun to actually see it and do it and appreciate it. Right, right. And just do it on like a deeper level. Yeah. Well, this was the first episode. This is going to be a series. It's going to be about three or four episodes on slashers. Uh, we covered the 60s and the 70s. Next episode, we're going to do the 80s, which is... Dear God. There's at least like 100 horror movies or slasher movies in the 80s, especially like in like 81. And that's not <laughs> cut. That's not counting the no budget movies. Right. So uh, next episode, we'll we'll get with you on the finishing up the big three with, uh, you know, the Friday 13th movies and Nightmare on Elm Street. As they say, you better you better bring it up. <laughs> and then, the, you know, there's there's a lot of. 80s slasher movies just a lot to cover we can't cover every movie but i i feel like we're going to hit some of the more influential iconic slasher characters and kind of go from that iconic point of view and we'll mention some other movies that might have kind of felt like a ripoff but it still added something yeah. little just talk about whatever it added little right yeah, so. yeah we're, we're there there's no we're, we're not we're not here to state what it is and like damn it this is how it is like this is two guys who love horror and their opinions oh yeah this is definitely <laughs> opinions so but yeah we'll be excited to to do that one and then we're gonna at least do like a 90s episode and then current slashers are gonna kind of get tied into that or be its own episode we'll just kind of figure that out as we get there who knows um but like if, if you like the podcast, please come back. Please rate and review us online. 
I, as much as I don't really use Apple products, I know the Apple Podcast Store, I think, is like the main place you rate and review. You can email us at sbyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any suggestions for something we could do differently with the podcast or, I mean, we have a list of over 50 categories, but if you want to contribute a category, it might already be on there. It might not, but, you know, we'll add that to the list because we want to keep doing this and delivering this for you guys. Absolutely. Uh, we made a Twitter and an Instagram. I don't know how much we're going to use those starting out, but I wanted to go ahead and lock down the names. That's also S by S podcast for both of them. Like we might put some set pictures and if we refer to a prop or something from a movie, we might throw them on there and Twitter might be good for announcements, but we're not really going to utilize those until we start seeing some people on there to utilize them for. So definitely do that. And thank you for spending this time with us.